Hello, um, my name's Gary Simpson, and uh, I uh, am one of the professors of international law at the LSE here. It's my great pleasure tonight to uh, introduce my friend Helen Duffy to give the annual lecture in international uh, law. Uh, her subject is litigating human rights in the context of the war on terror, a slight modification to the uh, advertised uh, program. Um, as with our friends, we don't always know just quite how impressive they are until we go to the website and look at their biography. So it turns out that Helen, uh, as well as being the legal director of Interrights, an NGO that brings uh, uh, cases under international and comparative law, Helen might say a little bit more about the organization, but as well as being the uh, director of Interrights, Helen has had a very prestigious past. So she has been, for example, the legal advisor to the Scott Arms for Iraq Inquiry here in London. She was the legal director of the Center for Human Rights in Legal Action in Guatemala. She was a counsel on international justice to Human Rights Watch. And she was a legal, uh, she was a legal officer at the prosecutor's office at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former uh, Yugoslavia. She's uh, recently published a book called The War on Terror and International Law, and I'm just going to quote from a couple of reviews I managed to, to, to extract today on the Internet. Uh, they're all complimentary, by the way, <laughs> Helen. So uh, one a reviewer called the book or described the book as having depth, breadth, and clarity of exposition. And the Canadian Journal of Political Science said it was an impressive synthesis and analysis of myriad documents. And the best thing about Helen is that she's Scottish. So I'm absolutely delighted to have her uh, speak to you tonight. Thank you, Helen. So much. Well, it's really a great honour to be invited to give this lecture here. I was just thinking as I uh, wandered up here tonight how much LSE has changed in the past couple of years since I studied human rights uh, during my LLM here. And then, of course, I remember that 1989 might not have been a couple of years ago, but still, um, it's a great pleasure um, to come back uh, this many years later to uh, discuss um, human rights with you here this evening. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Khalid El-Mazri. It's been in the press this week. He's a German citizen who was arrested in the Macedonian border in December of 2003, apparently because he has the same name as the alleged mentor of the Al-Qaeda Hamburg cell and on suspicion that his passport was a forgery. After three weeks being detained by the Macedonian authorities, he's handed over to the CIA. He's flown to Baghdad and from there on to uh, the Salt Pit CIA interrogation centre in Afghanistan. He's held, held for 14 months, allegedly subject to mistreatment, prevented from communicating with uh, the German government or with his family. Eventually it becomes apparent that he has nothing to do with the other El Masri and that his passport was genuine. So he's released by the CIA. But instead of a grovelling apology and a large cheque and some assistance in re-establishing his life, he's uh, released on uh, a desolate road in Albania. When he's questioned over this El Masri affair, Condoleezza Rice avoided the issue but stated that I believe this matter will be handled in the proper courts here in Germany and, if necessary, in American courts as well. In fact, a lawsuit was brought in US courts but the government invoked the so-called state secrets privilege, arguing that the entire aim of the case was to establish state secrets. So the case was dismissed in its entirety by the district court that was upheld by the Court of Appeal, and as you may have seen on Tuesday of this week, the Supreme Court refused to review that decision. So that's the end of the line for justice for El Masri in US courts. I think this one case, in a sense, suffices to make most of the points that I would want to make tonight. These are clearly very challenging times for human rights and for human rights litigation in particular. Luckily, not all litigation tells quite such a sorry tale. There's now a vast array of cases that have been lodged, um, decided in some cases, underway in others, seeking access to information, compensation, challenging the legality of detention, expulsion, civil cases against governments and corporations, criminal cases against individuals, uh, members of intelligence agencies or on the basis of universal jurisdiction against high government officials 
and still to a lesser extent, but a number of cases on the regional and on the international level alleging human rights violations of, of a, a great range of, of types. I can't pretend to have followed all of that litigation in, in great detail, or I have to emphasise to be an expert in any of the national systems that I will refer to this evening. But what I hope to do is to give you an illustration of the pra that practice of human rights litigation as it's unfolded across a range of issues. It has to be said that it's very early days for any assessment of litigation. The cycle of litigation is notoriously slow. It takes a long time, particularly in light of some of the challenges in this area, as we'll see. And certainly, I think if we were to assess the impact of litigation properly, that sort of audit would have to wait possibly another 10 years. But I think it is timely in, in light of the extent of, of practice to date to begin to ask certain questions about um, the practice of litigation to date. I think the inquiry into litigation, a couple of preliminary points before I go to the particular cases, I think an inquiry into litigation can serve several different purposes. First, obviously, it provides us with some comparative framework to begin to ask questions about the impact and the limitations of litigation as a way of defending human rights and about the role of the courts in defending human rights. But I think it also provides an insight into some of the key human rights issues that are arising in the war on terror. Looking at issues through cases obviously provides a limited perspective. You're talking about a particular individual, a particular set of facts, particular legal issues that come up within the jurisdiction of a particular court. And the number of affected individuals that ever get to court is, of course, a tiny minority. But still, I think when you take this practice together, I think it provides actually quite a helpful prism that can display quite vividly some of the, the key characteristics of the war on terror as it affects human rights as it's unfolded over the past couple of years. And I think it may be worth highlighting up front what I see to be some of those key characteristics of, of the war on terror as it impacts on human rights. The first and over, overarching point is that leaving aside military aspirations, I think that the main policy aim of the US-led war on terror post 9-11 was intelligence gathering. It wasn't and it isn't, I think, about justice in any legal sense and certainly not about criminal responsibility. The second point to make is that the, the means to achieve that intelligence has involved violations of the most sacred and basic human rights norms, notably torture and arbitrary detention. <coughs> Thirdly, to the extent that states may not have themselves engaged in torture, there's been quite a widespread practice of playing fast and loose with the safeguards around torture that are part of the prohibition on torture and essential to give effect to it. And fourthly, a fourth characteristic has been the developing of, of a range of unprincipled distinctions being drawn between nationals and non-nationals, between standards that apply at home, standards that apply abroad, between what states themselves do and what they facilitate or encourage um, at the hand of other states. Fifthly, perhaps most insidiously, has been this removal of persons from the framework and from the protection of the law altogether, as characterised by uh, the rendition and disappearances of the El Masri case. And a final characteristic is what I see as this creeping reach of justifications that have been invoked exceptionally in the context of terrorism and national security and then used to erode standards far beyond the terrorism context. I'm now going to turn to look at a range of cases which I think will illustrate some of those characteristics. And I'm going to do that according to five uh, Areas. In some cases I'll go into some detail on the cases and in others I'll just need to skim over in the interest of time. The first issue that I want to address is, of course, the issue of arbitrary detention. Probably um, the most notorious issue and certainly uh, the one that's given rise to the most voluminous litigation is the whole Guantanamo Bay anomaly. The facts around Guantanamo Bay don't need any introduction. The detentions at Guantanamo have spurred a, a litany of litigation focusing mainly on two issues. One is the right to habeas corpus, the right to challenge uh, the lawfulness of detention before a court. And the second is the lawfulness of trials by military commission. 
This litigation in turn has triggered diverse responses from uh, the political branches in the US, and I think it's worth sketching out in a little bit of detail uh, this curious game of legal ping-pong that's gone on between the judicial and the political branches within the US in the past couple of years. In 2004, as I'm sure you, you all know, a series of cases made their way through the US courts addressing the refusal of the right of habeas corpus to Guantanamo de detainees. And this led to, to two judgments in 2004. One is the Hamdi against Rumsfeld judgment, dealing with US nationals, where the court found that those nationals had certain um, rights, including the right to, to have, quote, a meaningful opportunity to contest the factual basis for that detention before a neutral decision maker. And the Supreme Court very famously um, cautioned that a state of war is not a blank check for the president, that quote that we'll all have heard. In respect of the right of habeas of non-nationals, uh, the case Razul against others, uh, sorry, Razul and others against Bush, the Supreme Court refrained from deciding that issue in relation to non-nationals on the basis of the Constitution, but instead focused itself on statute. And it, it said that the courts had jurisdiction under statute to hear those cases, but it didn't decide the constitutional question of whether there is a right to habeas corpus for non-nationals um, detained by the US outside US territory. These decisions triggered various responses. As regards US nationals, uh, one of them, had, there had already been negotiations and he'd been returned to Saudi Arabia. And the other US national was transferred into the regular US court system. But as regards the hundreds of non-nationals uh, detained at Guantanamo, the first response by the executive was to introduce a couple of mechanisms, the combatant status review tribunals and the administrative review boards, which provide limited but non-judicial review of detention. So it falls far short of the right to habeas uh, that they were seeking before the courts. This paved the way for congressional follow-up in the Detainee Treatment Act, which, in addition to some positive provisions on the treatment of detainees, explicitly provided that there's no right, for right of habeas corpus for Guantanamo detainees. So Congress came in and made clear no right of habeas for Guantanamo detainees. Second round of cases makes its way to the Supreme Court, resulting in Hamden against Rumsfeld. The government claimed that this Detainee Treatment Act prevented the court from um, hearing the case, but the court decided that that wasn't the case. But again, it refrained from deciding it as a constitutional issue. It didn't decide, no, we have, there is a right here and there is a constitutional right to habeas. Instead, it said, that doesn't apply. The Detainee Treatment Act doesn't apply to Hamden because his case was already underway before the Detainee Treatment Act came in. So again, the, the, the court took a quite a restrictive view in terms of avoiding the constitutional issue, but deciding um, they didn't need to decide that constitutional issue, but they could proceed with the Hamden case. And the court went on to reach quite a positive decision in terms of the lawfulness of military, uh, military commissions, and it found that uh, Common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions, which provides certain basic due process rights, um, applied in this case, and, and the military commissions fell foul of that, again based on statute, a statutory reference to uh, the laws of war and therefore to those, those due process guarantees. I think it's worth noting that the Hamden judgment is quite disappointingly not framed in terms of individual rights, but rather more as a separation of powers issue. To what extent had the President acted in a way that exceeded his, the congressional limits on his authority? But still, there had been a finding by the Supreme Court that the executive's conduct in relation to these detainees violated uh, the Geneva Conventions. So the government, again, has the question, how does it respond to this second round of Supreme Court uh, decision-making? And it decides to respond um, in two ways. It adopts the, Mil the Military Commissions Act in 2006. It resolves the conflict with the Geneva Conventions by saying that the Geneva Conventions can no longer be relied upon uh, as a source of rights in habeas or in any other civil proceedings by these detainees uh, against US personnel. That's the first response. And the second, it says that the courts no longer have jurisdiction to hear habeas applications by any enemy combatants or persons awaiting that determination. 
And nor it also provides that the courts will not have jurisdiction to consider any other action relating to any aspect of the detention, transfer, treatment, trial or conditions of confinement of such alien. So the question that now arises is, is this constitutional, is the Military Commissions Act, which makes quite clear um, the fact that, that the courts do not have jurisdiction uh, is this constitutional? In other words, is there, yet again, the question comes up, is there a constitutional right to habeas? That question has never yet been decided. But of course that question is now on its way to the Supreme Court for a third round uh, before the Supreme Court. And in two cases, Aloda and Boumedienne, uh, the district courts reached completely different outcomes on that question. One said, well, there's the Military Commission Act, so we can't proceed. The other one said, no, this is in fact a fundamental rights issue. And this, that issue is now before the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court decides that issue, it's quite interesting. I think there will have been more Supreme Court judgments than criminal trials, either by military commissions or ordinary criminal courts in respect of 9-11 itself. So it says something about who is using the courts and who is using litigation uh, post-9-11. So I think this process in the US has really been characterized by constitutional avoidance and an extreme degree of judicial deference to the executive and to the constitutional decision-making role. Unfortunately, the political organs have not repaid that democratic compliment and have divested the court of jurisdiction and of certain sources of law. But the time for constitutional avoidance is clearly up and the matter is now squarely before the Supreme Court and we will see whether or not uh, and to what extent the Supreme Court addresses that issue for what it is, which is a fundamental human rights um, issue, and we're waiting to hear how the Supreme Court deals with that. Shifting over to the other side of the Atlantic, in 2004, as is well known, parallel cases made their way through the English courts, resulting in the famous A and others against the Secretary of State for the Home Department derogation case in the House of Lords here, um, otherwise known as the, the Belmarsh Judgment. I'll refer much more briefly to that case. I'm sure it's well known by all of you. The court found that the UK's derogation to enable it to detain people on national security grounds potentially indefinitely was not valid. While the majority was willing to defer to the state's assessment, the government's assessment of the existence of an emergency justifying derogation, it found that the detention of non-nationals could not be justified as strictly required by that emergency. And the court noted that if the derogation is not strictly required in the case of nationals, it can't be strictly required in respect of non-nationals that present the same threat. And the court found a violation of the right to liberty uh, under Article 5 of the European Convention and the, the non-discrimination provisions of Article 14. I think this is a, a very important judgment, the positive significance of which I think can be felt on a number of different levels. I think first it's constitutionally significant in its assessment of the proper limits of that issue of judicial deference. In a powerful passage, Lord Bingham famously rejects the Attorney General's uh, submissions in, in these terms. I do not in particular accept the distinction which he draws between democratic institutions and the courts. The function of independent judges is a cardinal feature of the modern democratic state, a cornerstone of the rule of law itself. The Attorney General is fully entitled to insist on the proper limits of judicial authority, but he's wrong to stigmatise judicial decision-making as in some way undemocratic. I think the case is also important in that it does what the litigation in the US has so far failed to do in really focusing squarely on the issue of equality as one of the central issues here in, in the war on terror. And it was significant too in the, in the government's response. The fact is that the government did respond to that judgment. It changed its practice um, and the delegation and it adopted new legislation. Of course, there are lots of things I'm sure that others are going to say about that legislation, but the fact is there was a response of a very different nature, I think, than we saw uh, in relation to the other cases that I highlighted in the US. So that's arbitrary detention. I'll move much more quickly on a second issue, which is the extraterritorial application of human rights obligations. This issue, in a sense, flows on from the Guantanamo analysis in that the whole Guantanamo anomaly, as we know, was based on the fact that by putting these people offshore, by putting them outside the territorial jurisdiction of the US, um, the human rights uh, of the individuals would not apply. The constitutional protections and the protections under international law would not apply to these individuals. 
This is, of course, this is wrong as a matter of law, and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, uh, when it uh, granted precautionary measures in the case, was, was pretty unequivocal on that, noting that the determination of a state's responsibility for human rights lies turns not on the individual's national, nationality or presence within a particular geographic area, but rather on whether, under the specific circumstances, the person fell within the authority and control of the state. It's worth noting, though, that quite a narrow view of extraterritorial application is mirrored elsewhere, and notably in the whole issue over um, whether the European Convention on Human Rights applies to the conduct of British troops in Iraq. And this case has been determined, as you may know, uh, in the case of Alskini against the Secretary of State, again here in the House of Lords. And the House of Lords accepted the government's view that while an individual within UK custody would be entitled to be treated in accordance with European Convention on Human Rights, rights, those on the streets of Basra, including those that were directly shot or mistreated by by UK soldiers patrolling the streets, would not be covered by the protection of the European Convention. And I think in contrast to the previous House of Lords decision, I think this one adopts what I would consider to be an unduly restrictive approach to the reach of states' human rights obligations based not on the principle whether in fact the state exercised control over the individuals affected, but based on a more formalistic distinction between were they in custody or were they not. And this quite limited view of when states' obligations under their human rights treaties apply can have quite serious implications for the war on terror given the extent to which it is executed extraterritorially. I'll turn to look at a third issue, um, torture and the safeguards related to torture. As we know, there have been uh, practices of torture and and inhuman treatment have come to light in recent years with increasing regularity, coupled by official attempts to justify that torture as matters of executive privilege or to redefine according to um, increasingly barbaric standards what torture actually means. But another thing that's happened, I think, has been an attempt to undermine procedural safeguards associated with torture. And I'd like to just highlight a couple of cases that deal with that latter issue. The first case is is the case of Ramsey against the Netherlands in the European Court of Human Rights. This is a case in which the Dutch government seeks to return Mr. Ramsey, an Algerian asylum seeker, to Algeria where, according to Mr. Ramsey, he faces the threat of uh, torture or ill-treatment. And the Dutch government's argument in this case relates, as many in Strasbourg, Strasbourg do, to the question of whether there is, in fact, a real and personal risk to Mr. Ramsey back in, in Algeria, and the question of the onus and proof, of proof, for example. But the UK government changed the face of that case by taking the unusual step of intervening as a third-party intervener in the case together with uh, four other governments. And the UK argued that in light of the growth of Islamist extremist terrorism, the court needs to re-examine this relationship between the protection from ill-treatment and national security interests. In effect, through a balancing test, it argues that national security could justify exposing persons to real and imminent risk of torture in certain circumstances. This is a case in which we intervened along with um, numerous other international and UK-based NGOs arguing uh, the absolute nature of the prohibition on torture, um, including uh, the prohibition on deportation in circumstances where there is a real risk. While that Ramsey case, which remains pending, was sitting there, another case made its way through uh, the court, through the corridors of Strasbourg, uh, unbeknown, it has to be said, to the NGOs, the case of Sadi against Italy. And the UK seized the opportunity to make its, the same arguments that it made in Ramsey in this context, and it did so in a hearing before the Grand Chamber. So we're waiting to hear. Unfortunately, the court refused to even look at our arguments in Ramsey, although they'll be decided in the context of Sadi, but that's another story. Um, but the matter is before uh, the Grand Chamber. In this litigation, the UK government is essentially trying to change the law, albeit in a very different way than the the legislative changes that we referred to in the context of the other cases. It's very clear in the context of the Strasbourg jurisprudence and indeed um, that of of other international bodies 
that there's no room for balancing in respect of the absolute non-derogable human rights such as freedom from torture, including deportation to torture. Perhaps optimistically, I can't see the ECHR, the European Court, accepting that argument, but I think it's very interesting that the UK government even makes that argument today. And it says something, I think, about, about the shift in the position of, of certain governments. Another case that also relates to this question of procedural safeguards around torture relates to the question of the admissibility of tortured evidence. This has arisen in several states since 9-11 and it played out, as I'm sure a number of you will, will know well, in the second E and others against the Secretary of State for the Home Department issue, a case before the House of Lords. And this case concerned the admissibility of evidence obtained through torture by foreign states before the Special Immigration Appeals Commission here in the UK. And that case is interesting for a variety of reasons. The government advanced what I think is, is quite an anomalous argument and, and quite a, an informative one, I think, which was apparently accepted by the Court of Appeal, that had the torture been at the hands of a UK official, then the evidence obtained would, of course, be inadmissible. But where the torture is at the hands of a foreign state, um, and the UK is not directly responsible for that, it argued that the evidence... Um, should be admissible or that uh, there was no rule against admissibility of evidence in these circumstances. The House of Lords rejected the government's arguments and in an important judgment it found that torture is torture no matter who does it and that evidence, such evidence can never be admitted in legal proceedings. And it also noted importantly the link between the safeguards against torture and the incidence of torture by finding that, quote, States cannot condemn torture while making use of the mute confession obtained through torture because the effect is to encourage torture. In other respects, it's worth simply flagging that the judgment is in some ways quite limited, although it's very strong on the principle on the admissibility of torture. In other ways, it's, it's more limited. Firstly, in terms of how that rule would actually operate in practice. The court found that where the tribunal had established on the balance of probabilities that the evidence was obtained through torture, then it's inadmissible. But if it's not established, as presumably will quite often be the case given the nature of the uncertainty and opaqueness around intelligence, and there remains a, a doubt or a real risk that that was the case, the evidence could be admitted. So it's, it's slightly more limited in, in that nuance. And secondly, the court focused on the issue of admissibility in legal proceedings, but it indicated what may be an overly sweeping inclination to accept the lawfulness of the use of tortured evidence for other purposes, such as arrest, search or detention. And I think this difficult and sensitive issue of what, if any, are the extent of states' obligations not to rely on, solicit or trade in evidence obtained through torture outside the courtroom remains un unclear. Fourth issue that I wanted to survey some practice for you relates to um, extraordinary rendition. I've referred to this practice already, the kidnapping and secret transfer without any process of law um, to various locations or to the hand of third states. This is straightforwardly a violation of many well-established human rights on the basis of its eventual purpose, the rendition of the individual to torture or to arbitrary detention on the basis of the procedural arbitrariness, the lack of opportunity to challenge the transfer, and in terms of the simple the removal of the person altogether from the protection of the law and withholding all information uh, concerning the situation from the individual or from the individual's family. And the Al-Masri case is, is one example that we saw of the extent of secrecy in this area and the absolute denial of justice, access to justice of Al-Masri in UK courts on the basis of the state secrets doctrine that I referred to. But in the Al-Masri case, there have also been arrest warrants issued by uh, German courts in January of this year. But the German Justice Minister announced last month that on the basis of US statements that they would not be willing to cooperate in the extradition of any of these uh, CIA agents, um, the German Justice Minister has said that they, she will not therefore, that they will not therefore be uh, moving to make a formal request for extradition. 
So there are these um, arrest warrants out there, but it's not clear what, if anything, will, will happen with them. In a parallel development, there are also arrest warrants that have been issued by Italian courts in relation to another rendition that are worth mentioning because, again, the state secrets issue has arisen and the Italian government raised this issue, uh, which is currently before the Constitutional Court. And criminal proceedings in Italy in respect of that rendition are also, penned, uh, are also suspended pending the decision of the Constitutional Court. A second illustration of the challenges to litigation in the area of, of extraordinary rendition is the, the case of Budella and, and others. These are Bosnians of Algerian descent who were held in Bosnia at the behest of the US. A Bosnian court eventually decided that there was no evidence against them and therefore they had to be released. They were released, but on the, the, their way out of court, they were apprehended again uh, by uh, US and Bosnian authorities, it seems. And they were transferred to Guantanamo Bay. So they were successful in court, and uh, so far it's, it's done them a lot of good. When this case went to the US court, um, it was uh, ruled out on the basis of the Military Commissions Act that I mentioned earlier that there was no longer any access to court for these people. That is one of the cases that's currently before the Supreme Court, so we'll see whether or not um, the Supreme Court will, will find that, that there is the right to challenge the lawfulness of that detention and transfer. But this case is also before the European Court of Human Rights, and it's one of, of the cases that, uh, again, my organisation has requested leave to intervene in that case. And one of the issues that the European Court of Reis is raising, obviously this, the case before the European Court relates to the Bosnian state's responsibility uh, for um, facilitating this process of uh, unlawful, unlawful arrest and rendition to Guantanamo. And one of the questions that the court is raising in that case is the extent to which Bosnia was obliged to make diplomatic representations on behalf of these detainees post-transfer. A number of renditions have all, cases have also begun to unfold in Africa. And uh, there's one case currently before the uh, Kenyan courts dealing with the rendition of Kenyan uh, nationals from Kenya to Somalia, um, apparently, allegedly, at uh, US behest again. Um, but those cases are, are just beginning. Um, but it will be interesting to see how, how they develop in a quite a different context than the litigation has developed to date. All of, these lit all of these rendition cases are just beginning. I think it's very early days. And they obviously raise particular challenges for human rights litigation, which I think we can probably group euphemistically into three types of access issues. One of the challenges for litigators is, of course, access to the individuals. We're very often talking about disappeared people. We don't know who they are or where they are. Jurisdictions vary, but very often, um, most often, you need an individual in order to bring one of these cases. Very few jurisdictions allow for public interest cases of, of a broad type. And the second is access to information or evidence, which is clearly very difficult. Dick Marty has done a very interesting um, report. I'm sure you've seen two reports on, on rendition, and he refers in the second to a fairly systematic cover-up, which makes access to information and evidence in this area particularly difficult. And the third area is access to the court, as we saw from both the Budella, cases, uh, Budella case and the El Masri case, that even when a person emerges and puts their head above the parapet, access to court has in those cases been completely blocked. The fifth and final issue that I wanted to mention by way of, of the survey of cases is the, the use of the terrorism label post 9-11 and the implications for alleged terrorists and others associated with him or her. The consequences of the application of the terrorist label is, I think, quite well illustrated in one of the cases that we are currently litigating before the European Court of Human Rights. The case is brought on behalf of the family of the killed uh, Chechen leader, uh, Aslan Masgadov. It's not a war on terror case, or maybe it is. I guess we could argue about that. Um, but I think it illustrates the point about what are the implications of calling somebody a terrorist. What that case shows is that there are laws in place in the Russian Federation which provide that if a person deemed to be a terrorist is killed by the state in the course of a terrorist operation, 
the body of that person will not be returned to the families. There's no process associated with this whatsoever, but the body will not be returned. The families who we represent, the family in this case, are deeply affected by this. They're not able to grieve, they're not able to pay their last respects, they're not able to ensure that the family member is given a burial um, in accordance with religious practices. And in relation to their own particular uh, religious requirements, they argue that this may lead to him not being able to ascend into heaven at all because uh, they couldn't require, they couldn't comply with um, the specific religious uh, requirements that, that, that uh, relate to that. And I think this exemplifies how the use of the terrorist label to justify otherwise unacceptable special regimes can often be used to mask arbitrariness and to punish those associated in, in very, uh, a range of ways with um, persons accused of these acts of terrorism. A positive example, though, of, of courts curbing what we might call the creeping effect of the related notion of guilt by association arose in an Australian case that I'd like to mention from earlier this year, the case of Hanif against the Minister for Immigration and Citizenship in the Federal Court of Australia. This case concerned Mohammed Hanif, who'd had his visa revoked by Australian authorities on the grounds that not only was he the second cousin of one of the men who'd, who drove their car into Glasgow Airport, he'd stayed in the same hostel as him and he'd left him his mobile phone when he left Scotland. In the Australian courts, the authorities argued that any form of association with persons accused of this sort of criminal activity, whether it's a family association or another association, was enough to fail the character test set down in Australian immigration law. And the judgment, I think, quite importantly rejects this, and it's a nice rebuke to this spreading notion of guilt by association. And the judge held that for the law to apply, the association has to be of a criminal rather than of a family or innocent nature. I mean, that seems so obvious, but the fact is they were arguing any association with this person, even if it is an innocent association, even if it is only a family association, is enough for us to be able to revoke this person's visa. And the court rejected, rejected that in, in, a, in quite strong terms. It's worth having a, having a look at that judgment, actually, because I think it is quite funny in some ways because the... The lawyer engages with the judge. The judge says, but, but that's surely that can't be right because I've represented uh, murderers and terrorists and that, I can't be a national security threat. And the lawyer says, well... <laughs> and uh, so the, how about that for strategic litigation? I'll end this survey of cases by citing the observations of the government of Botswana in a case that we submitted to the African Commission on Human Rights last week. The government writes, We wish to recall the bombings that occurred in London, Madrid, and the 2001 events in New York, and most recently Egypt. It's against this background that we argue that the declaration of Mr. Good as a prohibited immigrant was made in the interest of peace, stability, and national security. We've given examples of traumatic results that occur where there's a lapse in dealing with security issues. If the president visualizes a threat to national security, it's wrong for him to wait for the threat to materialize, I don't know if you recognize that language, but into a national disaster. It's right to state that decisions whether something is or is not in the interest of national security are not a matter for any organ other than the executive. Now you would assume on reading that that this is a case concerning terrorism and those are the same old national security arguments. In fact, this case concerns a professor who was deported from Botswana for criticising presidential succession in Botswana. The facts couldn't be further removed from the terrorism context. He had no cousins anywhere near any of the terrorist incidents. He didn't have an Arabic name. He didn't have a mobile phone. But this case exemplifies, I think, the extent to which national security, the global terrorist threat, and the exceptionalism of the war on terror are being relied upon to set aside human rights in contexts that really have nothing conceivably to do with terrorism. <coughs> I'd like to move on to make a few observations on, on impact. I'm reluctant to try to draw conclusions from a wide range of practice, different issues, different systems. But I'd like to offer a few observations as to how we can begin to think about questions of the potential impact of human rights litigation in this area. 
I think in asking ourselves questions about human, the impact of human rights litigation, if any, there's certain traps that we have to be careful to avoid. One is to focus on the result rather than the process, which can itself be important both for the individuals involved and for the system. And the second pitfall is, so far as one is focusing on results, to look at the question of whether you won or whether you lost. The term success without victory is one that's often used in, in US litigation to defer to the fact that there are many ways in which a case that's lost can contribute, can contribute to success in the longer term. And the third pitfall, I think, is to be so strategic and long-term as to pretend that the result in the particular case in the court order actually doesn't matter at all, when clearly it does. There are hundreds of people detained in Guantanamo Bay fighting for recognition of one of the most basic human rights to be brought promptly before a competent court. Lawyers normally ask, argue about whether that means hours or days. Some of these people have been detained for five and a half years. The Supreme Court, although it's will now have its third opportunity, but the Supreme Court has yet to say unequivocally that these people have any legal rights whatsoever. And I think this has to be still less to go on to, to order the release of any of them. And I think the fact is this has to be an, an indictment not only on the political systems that, uh, that have brought about this arbitrary detention and that have failed to do enough in the case of other states to bring it to an end, but also of, of, of the judicial system. But that said, which I think is in one, we can look at that from in one sense as an unmitigated disaster and why should any of us invest in any of this human rights litigation? And in the interest not only of, of self-interest, but I'd like to move on to say why um, I think some of this litigation practice that I've referred to may have had a positive impact or may yet have a positive impact. And I think it can do that in the following ways that I'll, I'll refer to quite quickly. First, I think litigation, bringing these cases to court, serves to, to frame the human rights violations as issues of law. That in itself, I think, is very important in the context of a, a highly politicised uh, discourse around terrorism. It's a reassertion of the principle of legality. Importantly, many of these cases, to varying degrees, but they mark the existence of some check on executive action. It's best uh, characterised perhaps by the state of war is not a blank cheque quote. But in many of the other cases, the fact that courts were willing to analyse whether the particular measures taken were necessary um, is, I think, an, an important thing, that they were willing to subject that executive action to close scrutiny. It serves very often, litigation very often serves as a rebuke to the executive, which can itself have, of course, political repercussions. And it can be critical, I think, in reasserting the democratic credentials of the system, which have often been lost through the illegitimacy of the conduct that's impugned in the case. Judgments have very often, as I've mentioned, been conservative, and they've been characterised by judicial deference to the political branches, again, to varying degrees. But so far as this, these cases themselves bring about a reflection on that proper relationship between the courts and the political branches, they may themselves contribute to and enrich our understanding of the separation of powers and the proper role of the courts. We can certainly ask in relation to the Supreme Court whether it should have decided when this case first came to them in 2004, should it have decided the question as a basic right to habeas? At what price in terms of judicial efficiency and certainly in terms of the protection of the individuals has come the virtue of, of judicial restraint in those cases? Litigation can also serve as a catalyst to change laws and practices, of course. And in some cases, like the the UK uh, Belmarsh case that I referred to, the causal effect is, is pretty clear. You get a judgment and you get a change of, of law or policy. In some other cases, it's actually quite difficult to tell whether or not certain shifts in practice um, have been precipitated by what we might call the irritant effect of, of litigation. For example, the return of nationals from Guantanamo Bay. Did the litigation, although not itself successful, have any, any part to play in that difficult, difficult to know. Judgments can themselves develop or clarify the law through jurisprudence, 
And of course, as the government hopes in relation to the Saudi and Ramsey cases, it can also weaken the law that way, weaken human rights protection. Importantly, in this area, I think cases can help to gain access to information, either directly, because that's the objective of, of the case, as in some of the Freedom of Information Act litigation before US courts, or as a byproduct. It can help to prise open the facts, sometimes in the face of a real wall of state <coughs> secrecy. And it can draw out the government's position, at a, at a minimum, it can draw out the government's position in the course of, of the proceedings. And litigation of this sort opens the legal system to the cross-fertilization of ideas from other legal systems. I think this is something we've seen increasingly in human rights litigation across the board, but in this area there are a number of interesting examples. The Guantanamo litigation is, is perhaps the most massive piece of human rights litigation ever. If you look at it just in terms of the number of amicus interventions that have been made before the Supreme Court from a massive range of international um, bodies, individuals, organizations, for example, the Lords in 2004 um, made an intervention, which I think must be an unusual thing for them to do. Um, in the cases currently before uh, the, the Supreme Court, the, among the many um, amicus briefs that have been presented are ones from Israeli military lawyers, interestingly, I thought, saying, uh, and I paraphrase, of course, but even we don't deny habeas to, in cases uh, before the court. Ultimately, I think the impact of litigation on human rights issues generally may lie in its gradual contribution to social change through a shift in public opinion. And I think there has been a shift in public opinion in relation to Guantanamo. Again, it's difficult to quantify what role litigation played in that, but certainly the lawyers most directly involved in the Guantanamo litigation certainly take the view that the most important contribution of that litigation has been to public debate and to informing public opinion and to leading, helping to lead that shift in public opinion. And it's important to remember that litigation is simply one very small part of a bigger puzzle. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, litigation, real cases tell real victims' stories and they provide often graphic illustrations of what euphemisms such as extraordinary rendition and enhanced interrogation techniques actually mean to, to human beings like you or I. And I'll wind up by highlighting just a few of the very many challenges that lie ahead for, for human rights litigation. One which I haven't mentioned but it's obvious is to ensure that there is an independent, capable and robust judiciary in the states around the world. To, to fulfill this function. That's, you know, all of this depends on that. And that the decisions of the judiciary and of international and regional human rights courts and bodies are, are taken seriously and are implemented. Another challenge, I think, is to use litigation in a way that enables us to hold to account the full range of actors that have responsibility in this, what we sometimes call the spider's web of violations. Um, around rendition and arbitrary detention. And I think that covers the states directly involved in the human rights violations, but it also covers the states that are indirectly involved, the states that um, in various ways aided and assisted the process of rendition. And it's a challenge, how do we bring those states to account? And to move from there to the question of individual responsibility. Thirdly, we always say that what we try to do is to elicit strong decisions to strengthen the human rights framework for the protection of human rights. And to some extent that's true, but most, mostly, to be honest, in this field, what we try to do is to win back gains that were made years ago, um, gains that we thought were secure and that have been undermined um, through the war on terror. So we have to keep winning back and then we have to keep, keep winning again. And fourthly, while I think we do have to be long-term and strategic, we have to make sure that fundamentally the cases that we bring, the litigation that we do, works for the people that we represent. And I think that's actually perhaps the greatest challenge. Cases should be a tool, as one English judge put it, for transferring power, not from the executive to the judiciary, but from the executive to the individual. One of the essential characteristics of the war on terror, as I mentioned, has been to put people beyond the reach of the law 
And I think if in any particular case we can bring those people back in and simply reassert their existence as human beings and as rights bearers, then maybe that's enough. Thank you. This expression that you mentioned just now, uh, enhanced interrogation, and I think it actually has a very interesting uh, historical lineage. Uh, the actual term was Verschärfte Vernehmung, and this was a term that was used by the Gestapo. Um, in, in the context of that, I wonder if you feel that the people behind the war on terror are really just simply the children of Hitler. Hello, my name is Helen, uh, College of Law. Um, I've had a, an opportunity to speak to you, I'm just Scalia, and obviously he's very he's, sorry, he's a very conservative person. And when I asked him about Guantanamo Bay, his response was, um, "Our law doesn't cover Guantanamo. It's not part of our territory." Um, it's none of our business. Now, um, I guess in England anyway, we, we emphasise strictly speaking, you know, um, judges only apply the law, it's the policy makers that make the law, whilst in the US the culture is very different, I think. And they do have a lot of persuasion, a lot of power, particularly in the field of, let's say, the death penalty. You know which judges you want um, to, to sort of lobby and the other judges that you want to just be on your side. So, if you had an opportunity to talk to those judges, what would you actually say to them in relation to Guantanamo? Thank you. I promised Helen there would be three questions from which she could cherry pick, so I do need a third question. There's one, one up there, yeah. yeah. Hi, yeah, that's working. Hi, my name is Amelia. I'm a barrister. My question is, um, how do you see the role of interrights in the context of everything that you've been discussing discussing today? Violations that, that we see, the extent of the violations that we see really increasingly every time these cases come up, I do think this has to be from another era. You know, this, this cannot be. So to that extent, perhaps there's some reflection back to the, the episode you referred to. Um, I do think some of the comparisons um, to Nazi atrocities and things are probably not that helpful, is, is my own view. But I certainly think the fact these facts stand on their own. You know, these are the most atrocious violations that we're talking about. I don't think we need to compare it to anything and argue about whether it's better or worse. Um, in terms of the, the second question of what, what would I say to the judges if I could have lunch with them? Well, I wouldn't, of course, because it wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> but we're not directly involved in, in most of those cases. Um, I think what I would say to them is it's about um, applying the law no more, no less. I don't think we need to get to the stage of looking at you know, great judicial activism. I don't think that's what's being required. It's really about 
um, simply applying the law, the most basic you know, protections well established in international law and also in, in you know, the rich uh, constitutional protections in the US and I think it's really about that. We're not asking them to go too far into policy. Of course, you know, law and politics cannot be entirely separated. I don't think we should be naive about that, but, but they have a critical role in applying the law and those well-established basic protections, and that's really all that I think is being asked of them. Um, and the last question, in terms of the role of, of interrights, well, our role in, in, in the litigation is... Uh, Various, I think, depending on the nature of case, the case, sometimes, as I mentioned, we'll represent individuals directly <coughs> in cases or we'll co-represent, usually with national lawyers who are expert in the national systems that we work in. We try to bring international and comparative expertise. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll present amicus interventions where our objective really is about the principle and about changing the law rather than uh, representing the individual. We always have to be careful, I think, as an, an, an NGO about conflict of interest. And, and if you represent someone, then, of course, you'll make the arguments at the end of the day that that individual uh, wants you to make. And sometimes we can stand back from that and do amicus third-party types of, of interventions that enable us simply to argue on the principle and argue on, on international competitive law. I don't know if that answers your question. I, mean, I think what we do is we, we try to conduct this litigation with, with partner organisations um, and to do it on, on a range of different levels. We interview most often before regional and international courts, but very often on these cases we'll intervene on the national level, although we'll be making arguments of international comparative law, which is our area of expertise rather than the national systems themselves. Great, thanks. Question from did happen, but did it happen to the law? And, and, and are we in danger of overemphasizing or exaggerating the sort of disjuncture of the moment? So what would a lawyer speaking in 1999 think about what's happened since 2001? I mean, would she just say, oh, look, I saw these trends in 1990 or 1985, and I, I'm not that surprised? Or would she say, this is incredible. I never believed that the whole system would change as radically as this because two buildings came down in New York City. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways, Tree's question and your question sort of go together in the sense of, of the, uh, you know, the extent to which I suppose that it really is a shift in, in the law rather than a shift in practice. I mean, that, you know, can you get to the stage where you really say that state practice and opinion of Euros on torture has changed enough that the law has actually changed? I think that's, I, I would doubt that that is the case. Um, you know, I think it's more a question of, of violations of the law rather than having got to that point where, where the law has changed. And particularly in relation to torture, of course, where there's the whole issue of use Kogans and the fact that torture has been accepted, the prohibition on torture has been so long accepted as, as the most straightforward violation of use Kogans norms that don't adjust uh, with state practice. Um, so I think it would be... Um, I think it would be almost impossible to sustain an argument that um, that the law on, on torture had actually changed. So far as certainly, so far as we're talking about the absolute nature of the provision, I, I don't think that that, that argument could be, could be made. Um, 
has something, I, I think to some extent the jury is probably still out in terms of what the, the impact on the law generally has been of, of 9-11, but again it's that question of clearly there have been massive amount of violations, but has that been enough to really, has the legal framework as such really changed? And um, I tend to think that, that it probably hasn't. I think there probably are some areas. There's the, the whole issue of state responsibility, um, which we haven't got into here, not in relation to human rights specifically. There are some areas where you can see that the law probably has uh, shifted um, and that practice has clarified the law, if you like, post 9-11. But I think in relation to, to the fundamental human rights issues, I don't think that the legal framework has changed, but I think there are, are increased uh, challenges in terms of the implementation of that framework. And simply the question of legality, how seriously do you have to take that framework? I mean, that's the question, you know. I mean, is it really, or are we really weighing up, you know, politics and exigencies against the law, or are we working within the law? I mean, it seems to me that that, in a sense, is, is, is the biggest challenge. And in terms of how to ensure an independent judiciary, that's obviously a big, a big question. I mean, I think there are a number of things that... A number of things that, that can be done. There are a number of things that the NGOs like my own and others do um, in terms of educating the judiciary, which, you know, empowering the judiciary through education, through access to resources, through access to other judiciaries in other countries that do have a strong uh, culture of independence. I think that can be incredibly important in terms of giving the judiciary the, the confidence um, as well as the means and uh, the resources to become more robust, to become uh, more independent uh, of the state. So I think all of those things in terms of judicial training and judicial strengthening and cross uh, sort of colloquy across judicial systems is very important in terms of uh, strengthening that, that judicial independence. Did that answer your question a little bit? Yeah. <coughs> okay. We'll uh, finish there. I, I'd like to offer sort of two votes of thanks. One is, is to you all for coming uh, here. It's, it's, it's a really very enthralling place to be, the LSE, at the beginning of any semester, and that's uh, largely due to people turning up to public seminars. So thank you very much for all coming and looking so engaged, and it's no wonder you look so engaged. And I can tell my own students that for the next three or four weeks I'll be regurgitating most of the ideas you've heard tonight in my Tuesday and Thursday lectures. Uh, Helen, thank you very much for that very informed, informative, and panoramic view of human rights litigation in 2007. Thank you. Thank you.